Welcome, welcome to another episode of Linen Suit and Plastic Tie, the podcast where we talk to unconventional and unique storytellers to help our listeners unlock the power of storytelling in their everyday lives. I'm Gorev. And I'm Kevin. Hey, Kev, have I ever told you the story of Spider-Man? Yes. Well, I'm going to pretend like you said no. Everyone knows the, the story of, of the amazing Spider-Man, but no one really knows the story behind how Stan Lee created this character. And the fact that the publisher at the time, Martin Goodman, actually kind of hated the idea. At the time, superheroes were these kind of perfect figures. Gods. You had Superman. You had Batman. They didn't have any flaws. And Stan Lee wanted to tell a real story about a teenager superhero. Geeky kid with teenage problems. But Martin Goodman did not think this story would be a success. So what he did was he put it into a comic book that was going to die. Amazing Fantasy 15. And the rest is history. And that is how one of the greatest American stories started. There's something to really talk about in that story. And it goes back to the idea of psychological distancing. We've talked about uh, with Dr. Dre Letamendi. Stories and characters that we can relate to that have common traits with us help us observe, understand, and better process the struggles we go through in our own lives. For sure. But let's not give away too much about our guest today. Kevin, who are we talking to? Today we are talking to Kevin Burke. Kevin Burke is a uh, Emmy-nominated producer of comic book series like the Ultimate Spider-Man, Marvel Spider-Man, My Little Pony, Star Wars, uh, The Resistance, Transformers series, even a new Transformers series coming to Netflix. He has worked on so many amazing fandoms as a producer, a writer, um, even a songwriter, which we'll get to in the episode. But we're really excited to have him because he is such a unique storyteller who's worked on some of these iconic characters like Spider-Man, like the Transformers. Why don't we get started talking to this amazing storyteller? So to start us off, uh, Kevin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What is your story? Ah, what is my story? This is, I hate, I hate doing this part. I, I like telling other stories about other people. My own story, gosh, I am uh, from Pittsburgh originally. And my sort of dream was to, you know, make it into film and TV. And definitely growing up, that was not an option, really. I might as well have wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, But through lots of, uh, I guess, hard work and luck and um, just this sort of naive belief that I can pull this off, I have, uh, I've been out working, you know, about 20 years or so in in film and TV. And I'm I'm a producer and screenwriter, showrunner, mostly for animated television so um, a large chunk of my work is with marvel animation like ultimate spider-man avengers earth Space heroes avengers assemble marvel spider-man rocket and groot those are all you know similar characters different versions of the show um that i'd show run i've also done some series um like stretch armstrong on net um i've been a writer producer on ninjago for for years uh a lot of transformers so my little pony teenage mutant ninja turtles um I also have a handful of live action features. That's kind of what got me into the business that are still out there. But most of my, my day-to-day, most of my career is in animation. That's such an interesting path with so many unique elements. And you've worked on so many like really cool brands and IP and fandoms. I originally wanted to be a comic book artist. And, then, um, and that actually was 
I found it very lonely. Like I was sitting in my room by myself, just drawing for hours. And I thought, you know, I want to be with people and movie making was much more collaborative. And then in some sort of, you know, backwards way, my movie making career led me back into all these characters that I knew and loved from when I wanted to draw comics years ago. So it all, it all ended up adding up nicely to a career, but it was certainly not a path that I had predicted I would end up on. And speaking of, you know, working with people, I wanted to ask a little bit more about your roles too, because you've taken on, you know, both producer and writer roles and more. So uh, maybe could you tell us a little bit about how these roles resemble and different from each other? My writing and producing partner um, is a guy named Chris Doc Wyatt, who had, when we were entering the business, he was mostly a producer and I was mostly a writer. So we kind of came from those angles. And then now we share those duties completely. You know, the Venn diagram is completely overlapped. And, and what the, the difference is really, as a producer, you're really, it's about macro storytelling versus micro storytelling, right? And as a producer, let's say I'm breaking down a season of a series, I have to look at every episode, map out what should happen in all these episodes, what stories we want to tell as a major, let's say there's 20 episodes as a major arc, you know, where do we start? Where do we end? What are some key moments that have to happen? Um, and then again, as a producer, um, start breaking down what each episode then would be. Do you know what I mean? If we're going to get, if we're going to start at this beginning and get to this end, you know, whatever that may be, we need to have, you know, these things happen. And then we need to service, say this character, we need an episode about this, and this would be a great theme to explore. And we start breaking that down. And then once we have general outlines or, or premises for each episode, then it moves to the writers, which would be, which I would call like the micro storytelling, right? And, and oftentimes Doc and I are, are the writers. We write our, you know, our own script or we hire writers or have writers rooms. And what that means is you actually take our beat sheet or outline or loose version of what has to happen in the story and actually turn it into something, you know, like it, there's many different ways to tell a story. And so we break it down and, and, you know, that's when, that's when the fun dialogue comes in. That's when the, the great action sequences come in. That's when the characters that steal the show come in, right? That's the, that's when you make it into the thing it's going to be. Um, and then once that script is written, um, then as a producer, then throw my producer hat again, and then I have to go into it. Okay, we've got this script. It's great. But now I've got to talk to the people that have to, I have to be the person that has to put this into a production. And so you have to figure out a lot of things. You're like, okay, it's this, this scene here at the football game was excellent, but we can't draw that many people here. So maybe this can go to a bowling alley, right? And you start figuring out things that are more tangible. So eventually, once the writing is done, as a producer, I'm back to macro storytelling, but with existing things, you know, like as a writer, you're, you're staring at a blank page and you could really make anything happen. Anyone could say anything. I mean, it's all, that's the thing about writing fiction. It's all made up. Anything you want to have happen happens, right? So in some ways, it's a lot. It's a lot easier. You know, you can be like, "Oh, it'd be great if this character had a little brother." You just a boom, character now has a little brother, right? Just you can just make that happen. Um, uh, the second half producing of say an episode of television or or a season is taking those existing things. We have scripts. We've recorded the scripts. Now I'm starting to see some drawings come back, and the sequence I thought was going to be great underwater is not really quite working. So we have to maybe rewrite that sequence and adapt that, or get animation back in the and, it, and the sequences could be tighter or it happens to come in a little bit longer and I got to find things to cut. Like you end up storytelling, but but with existing stuff. And then it depends on where you're currently in TV production, depends on what your distribution is. When when I'm doing Spider-Man, for instance, um, it's once a week on Disney XD. So you can tell a story with the beginning, middle and end. 
Um, if it's something like Netflix, they want it more of a binge quality, right? So you oftentimes leave on some cliffhangers, almost like original comic books would be, right? Where you would get right up to the moment that they're going to win, and then you push it off, you know, then you don't actually finish that because you get there. Oftentimes, writing for, for Netflix, we'll, we'll finish our A story, whatever our A story may happen to be, our, our, say, big bad guy. But the B story, whatever character story that is, a story about, you know, failing a test or asking someone to a dance or something that's personal or something that, like that will leave as a bit of a, a personal cliffhanger. So you, you're compelled to watch more, even though you feel satisfied by the story you just told. You know, I'm really interested in this kind of overarching producer job, like running a show. When you're hiring and working with writers, how do you choose writers that are right for your show? And how do you kind of how do you kind of mold them into writing the best uh, stories for your Pacific show? Well, that I mean, that there's a lot that goes into that. The first thing you end up doing is you, you end up looking for writers that you you we end up figure out what you what you need on your staff. For instance, the show we're doing now, which was announced, it's Bot Bots. It's a Transformers comedy show. Um, the premise being that that Energon landed at a mall and turned all these inanimate objects into into, into so this isn't this isn't jets and and um, you know trucks. This is these are like donuts. Do you know what I mean? Turning into robots and that sort of stuff. So going into that, you know, we were like, look, we we know the we know the big story. My partner and I, we know the Transformers world. Um, what we need is interesting and quirky writers that are going to come to this in a way that may not be, that is not your traditional Transformers sort of way, right? We didn't go after the people that have written a number, on a number of Transformers shows. It's not that show. We went for writers that have written for more straight up comedy shows that may have nothing to do with big franchises because that's what we wanted is, is uh, it's really a diversity of voices, of styles, of I mean, it's a comedy show, so you went for funny people, but not for the same type of funny people, right? We didn't go for, like, we wanted a show that wasn't five of the same type of comedy writers that would just deliver us that thing. We wanted ideas that were coming from left field. We wanted ideas that were more surreal. You know, we wanted ideals that ideas that were just different. Um, and also, then, I mean, then, then you have other factors that you have to bring into a writer's room, which is just personalities. You know, people have to work well together. That is, in this in the business of... TV that matters a lot. There are a lot of great writers out there. Um, one of the major factors is what great writer do you want to spend nine hours in a room with, right? That that matters. Um, writing television is very much a kind of social activity. You know, it involves just it's a group brainstorm. It, it requires that. Part of the reason why I even moved to to LA is like I really wanted to be in a city where there were writers and there were creators that were better than me because I don't want to be coming up with all the ideas even as a producer i don't want to be i'm our job is to sort of herd the cats right like to just kind of keep it to, to say here's here's the big picture now you you all of you just go we'll let you know if it's if it works in the context of the show but please you know come up with 10 ideas that i could never think of because that's what you're here for you know i mean that's what we need i think people sometimes don't give enough credit to the to the writing staff you know oftentimes the top line person gets a lot of the credit and it's not that they, they, they don't deserve it, but this is a big communal activity. And if you've set up the right group of people, that's what it's going to feel like. I, I love something you've been talking about a little bit about how writing is not just about the medium you're using, like TV writing is more social activity. And I love that idea where it's just like different people thrive in different types of roles and there's no one version of a writer that can do everything. Right. And there's no one version of storytelling that sort of can do everything. And that's 
not necessarily that's not a problem at all i mean the the real issue is finding what place in storytelling you thrive at both you know ideally professionally so you can keep doing it but also just creatively and on that note i also wanted to talk a little bit more about format wise uh you have worked a lot with animations series uh and you've also done some live action uh writing and producing earlier in your career uh, i wonder uh from your perspective what is unique about the animation format i think the real strength of animation honestly is is the world building meaning a lot of stuff moves right into near mythology like in animation you will immediately buy a world full of ponies like my little pony you'd just be like oh yeah i buy this world if that was in realistic looking animation you know sort of like jungle book whatever it might take a moment to be like oh i'm not sure you know i mean i have to get into this this headspace that there's a world full of talking ponies but you can in in cartoons you know you can do teenage turtles who live in a sewer like and it moves your storytelling into into almost fables into almost mythology very quickly you know um and people don't have that same sort of barrier in their mind about what's the what's the logistics of this. You know, I mean, how does this world exist? Why does this happen? What what's the science of it? What's the physics? You're immediately going to buy that this is the case. You know, I mean, I, we live in this world. This is the case. Um, that's the real strength. You know, I mean, it's not a technological strength to me. It's a it's a storytelling strength. It's that people's suspension of disbelief is totally different for a cartoon than it is for any live action thing. Even if it's arguably animated, it just—it just you're willing to go places. Absolutely, I've never thought about it like that, and it just allows you to enter worlds more fastly without questioning it because it doesn't look like your world. So you're like, it's not my world. It's amazing how quickly you can just set something up, and then people go right to what's essentially the core of the story. You know what I mean? Like in Pony, for example, they're—they're they're not like. How do these ponies work together? They're they're just kind of they want to know what the theme is. They want to know what the story is. They want to know the difference between these characters. You do. You you just go into a, a a more of a fable, more of a mythological place, much faster. You know, you've talked a little bit about so many different huge fandoms: Transformers, Star Wars, My Little Pony, Marvel, uh, and you've worked on all these different fandoms. Can you tell us a little bit about the similarities across all of them, and how do you tap into each unique story? I would say, having done a lot of, of fandoms, there's there are definitely some un, uniting themes. Um, in fact, I'd say most of them share similar themes. It's really the approach to those themes is what differentiates a lot of them. Um, and I would say, honestly, themes whether people realize that or not, the themes are what draws people back. You know, people might say, "I love Star Wars because I love space. I love Transformers because I love robots." But it's really the themes that keep you coming back each time. I'd say at the heart of almost all of these is heroism. It's pretty obvious, you know. I mean, it's about trying to do the right thing under extremely difficult circumstances, right? That almost every one of these things, to some extent, is aspirational in that heroic sense. Um, this when we're when we've been doing these shows, like that's sort of a given, and it's easy to fall into the trap of of sort of a bad guy of the week and having having your hero just always win, you know. And I don't think that's necessarily great storytelling, and it certainly doesn't keep people coming back you know you keep fall, you fall into that sort of trope um so on a, almost all of our shows we try to explore some deeper themes that are these sorts of shades of gray between right and wrong a little bit like for instance we often play on the idea of what what is heroism or or villains giving villains a chance to redeem themselves do you know what i mean and finding out people that you hated might turn out to be 
you know, they might have a chance to redeem themselves or you misunderstood them. And it turned out that they were different than you expected. And we've also done this in a few other times. Stretch Armstrong is an example I can think of, but we've done it on Spider-Man too, where, where people you trust turn out to actually be the real monsters. Right. And that's, these are, to me, these are important themes. I mean, we have a young, we tend to have a young audience. I feel like there's a lot of responsibility with what we do because you want to ingrain these themes um, at that age. You know, I mean, the kids are clamoring for these sorts of stories. And I, I do think it's important to show the, how difficult sort of heroism is and how important it is to do it. Do you know what I mean? Like you do every day you're facing, even as an adult, I'm facing things that just seem overwhelming and I'm going to pull through and not lose hope. Um, but then I also think it's important to say, you know, people grow. And sometimes people you thought you trusted may not be who you thought they were. And some people that you dismissed, you know, I mean, they may grow too. You know, I mean, you have to inherently believe that people can change at the heart of all this. And uh, and I very much do believe that. And I think that's the heart of all these stories. Um, the other thing, though, and I think this is super important thematically for all of these, which I do think is what draws a lot of people back to them repeatedly, is this sense of family and not and not biological family. I mean, almost no example is this a biological family. But there is a sense that the Avengers are a family, right? There's a sense that these people have come together and created a family dynamic. You know, uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are a family. Do you know what I mean? It is, in a lot of ways, the fr friends as family. You know, so so you would watch, you know, I do think people would watch an episode of Turtles where they just rode skateboards and ate pizza all day because they love this, these group of people. Do you know what I mean? It does. It's not the bad guys every week that pulls you back. It's this sense of friendship. It's this sense of friendship making making your own sort of family. It's this sense of community, you know, um, all of this. And then that moves into the fandom because then you you see that in the show. You recognize that theme in the show, and then you build a variation of that theme in real life with other people who like that show. Um, I think that's that's very common, and I think it's very important. I mean, I love the idea of convey important messages and really re realizing the responsibilities we can carry with these animated series, especially for young audience. And these content as fantasy uh, of nature as their themes may be, they, they can really tell us a lot about the real world uh, struggles or scenarios or inspirations uh, that a lot of us can take on. So I think that's a really cool idea combining you know the fantasy with the reality and really learn a lot from it and to all these stories a lot of these characters have been around a long time and i think one of the one of the things that keeps them sort of evergreen is that they keep finding ways to update their relationship to these themes so that they're recognizable for a new age you know a lot of the themes or a lot of the worlds that they lived in when when some of these shows started i mean Spider-Man, as an example, you know, had a show in 1967. Like, it's been over 50 years that he's been on TV, not just in comics, that he's been on TV. And each version is a is reflective of its time that it was made. And um, that's that's one of the greatest strengths. I mean, Spider-Man is still extraordinarily relevant to, to the kids, sort of Peter Parker's age or, or younger. And it's because the character... Peter Parker sort of the, has to be the evergreen teenager, more so than, say, Batman or other characters. He, kids tend to look on screen and say, that's me. You know what I mean? I see me on that. And that that seems to be, you know, regardless of even gender or race, like they find a, there's something about him that seems universal and keeps getting updated. You know, every 10 years it needs to be, you know, um, every so many years it gets updated to what it's like to be a teenager today. And um, and he's never failed to reflect what that's like, which I think is 
a strength of the character. I mean, Peter Parker is such such an important character, and you go back to kind of his origins as Stan Lee, and the idea that he just, in a world of Superman and Batman and these very strong, kind of godlike, perfect characters, he just wanted a flawed teenager, and they threw it in a comic book that was going to be canceled. But, um, <laughs> um, yeah, and it just it it blew up, and that's he's one of my favorite characters too because it it kind of goes to Marvel's whole ethos of people aren't perfect and your heroes aren't perfect and that's why spider-man is so important especially for kids absolutely and 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 peter at, at his heart is trying his best i think that's something that has to be recognized and i think the what has been most relatable about him is that it seems like no matter how hard he tries it doesn't work out the way he expects to which every kid feels like to some extent do you know what i mean they feel like oh my gosh i'm doing my best I thought I did everything right and I forgot to do this and now it feels like it's all falling apart. And that's how he is every day, but he's striving. He's striving to, you know, what he do what he thinks is going to be for the best. Writing him for that reason has always been far more fun than than some other characters. Um, you know, for instance, the Avengers like Tony Stark, he's a fully realized character. You know, he has flaws, but he's an adult. Do you know what I mean? Like he he's not he doesn't wake up every day. He wakes up every day trying to make a better world. But he doesn't wake every day up every day saying, how can how am I going to get better and not mess something up? Right. Which is what Peter's thinking. And that that gives him something you know, more relatable, more something you can strive for. And it's because he's they tend to play him younger. Do you know what I mean? When he's in, you know, in comics, you know, he's older, you know, he's been married. There's been versions of that. But the one that that in animation that we keep going back to is the younger version, because it, the audience relates to that. Do you know what I mean? It relates to him trying his best and not always getting there. And not being a fully developed person like the Avengers are, you know, what I mean, they're adults, you know, flaws and all they're adults. Um, he's he's still in his mind molding himself, trying to find himself, trying to find his place in this world. And it's that's a very universal theme. Yeah. I mean, talking on you mentioned a little bit about how every new generation of Spider-Man cartoon, because there's been a lot of amazing ones kind of draw from the world it's in now. Um, and you've worked on more than one different spider-man shows yeah, yeah, yeah. so when you go about crafting a new spider-man show or any show uh that has such a deep and rich history not just in movies but in 80 years or i'm not sure how old spider-man is right off the top of my head but decades and decades of comic books how do you go about retelling familiar and stories that people you know and fandoms people really care about in a new and exciting yeah. way well, that 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 is a challenge. It always is going to be a challenge. I learned early on um, that some of your audience on some of these things, people are going to love it. Some people are always going to prefer a version, a version that came before you. Um, I can pretty much tell like a person's age by what their favorite Spider-Man cartoon is. You know, it's very simply, you know, it's whatever, it's sort of whatever Spider-Man was out when you were ten or so. Like that tends to be people's favorite type of Spider-Man, um, and that's how it's supposed to be. You know, um, and I, I having two having done Ultimate Spider-Man and Marvel Spider-Man um, and I have friends, good friends of ours that we did Stretch Armstrong with did um, did uh, Spectacular Spider-Man before that. And um, yeah, and I know the guys that did uh, that did the 90s Spider-Man. It is a matter of sort of finding what new area hasn't been done recently or might appeal to kids a little bit more um, when Ultimate started. It was more like, you know what, we've seen Spider-Man, we've seen sort of the, we've seen this origin story of Spider-Man a few times, you know, kind of like how Marvel had it when they were, when they brought him into the, 
to the MCU from the two Sony movies. It was kind of like, well, we've seen the origin. How do we have a fresh take on this? So Ultimate Spider-Man was the fresh take of, you know, what if we do this Ferris Bueller thing where he looks at the camera, you know, stop, you know, it has more, it ends up, you know, it's a little more Deadpool-y, I guess, in that sense, you know. Um, and it just had a style that was updated, that was for its time. And, you know, naturally there are older viewers that did not like that. And I meet people now in college and they're like, that was my, that was the greatest Spider-Man ever. You know, like, why did that ever end? And that's, that's the nature of it. You know, you, you just figure it out. And then all these shows, though, because the audience is generally only a few years, none of them can really last forever. Um, it sort of needed to be updated. To wrap up our episode, we have this segment called Suspenders. Uh, basically, we ask you a random interesting question uh, that's unrelated to anything, and you can give us any random fun answer you feel like. Our question of the day is, what is the first show you became obsessed with? Obsessed yes. with? The one that I got obsessed with that really affected my life was Robotech. That was serialized storytelling that was more mature and showed me that animation could be this thing. I mean, that my love of that show has never waned. Yeah, I love, I love what you say. I love you talking about, about those shows that kind of gave some more seriousness and weight to animation. So people started to realize it's not, and you see that more in modern day now with some of these animations with older audiences, but some of the older ones is kind of like, wasn't respected as much as it should have been as a medium. Yeah, I mean, there is an interesting thing is like when I was young, I spent a lot of time trying to convince adults that superheroes should be taken seriously, right? And that they can be dark and that they can be mature, you know, and now we have, you know, the Joker winning Oscars and stuff. And I feel like part of my, part of my career now is reminding people that superheroes are also for children. Do you know what I mean? That you can, that actually kids can get into them too. Uh, it is not how I expected, you know, I, um, everyone does take it seriously. I think it's fantastic. Um, I do sometimes worry that there's like a kid space that's being forgotten in the middle of this. And, uh, and that these characters are good for, they're good for adults and good for kids. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's, you know, you just never know how these things are going to turn out, but I, I couldn't be happier to see the world that we live in, in which, you know, I can, I can talk to Wanda, I can say the word Wanda vision to anyone and everyone knows what that is. I don't feel like an ownership. There's some people that feel like, oh gosh, that was my thing. Now everyone loves it. I always thought these were fantastic stories. And I always thought if they could get presented in a way that people learn about these characters and these stories, they would love them. And that's really what we're seeing. You know, we're, we're seeing all these great characters, all these great stories being delivered in storytelling ways that audiences are, are as enamored with as I was when I was 10. And I think that's an absolutely wonderful thing. This is sort of a dream world. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time. It was a great conversation. Learned so much. And it was, it's really great to kind of dive into these topics and this very unique form of storytelling. Welcome back to Top Hat, the segment of the show where we dissect and digest the conversation we just had with our guest. Today, we talked to Kevin Burke. Rough. What did you think of our conversation? Oh man, Kev, you know I love any time we talk to any comic book superhero fan. You know I'm a comic book fan at heart. I grew up on comic books. And it, it really blossomed into my passion and love for story time. And for me as a viewer of TV shows, 
it's really cool to learn about behind the scenes of crafting the story,、uh, not only for each episode but also for the entire season or show,、uh, and that is called macro storytelling,、uh, as opposed to the micro storytelling that happens to each episode. Kevin talked to us about. As a producer, you're often in charge of figuring out, okay, what's gonna happen throughout、uh, all the episode. What's the the end point? What's the starting point? And then how we get from point A to、uh, to the eventual point B, and what kind of writers、uh, and personalities do we want to bring in to compile each of the episode and, and bring them all together. It's such a collaborative effort, and that's exactly what you're saying. The difference between macro and micro story time was so such an interesting concept because it reminds you of how many different people play a role into bringing a TV series alive. And I think this ties back to our final learning: heroism. The idea he talked about heroism and the responsibility of telling stories to children. These types of stories, these types of cartoons, have an ability to teach. Uh, children about heroism and responsibility, and how to act in certain scenarios that they haven't experienced yet in a fun and creative way. And this ties right back to something that Drea talked about: stories for any age group and building parasocial relationships. Drea told us in hard times, stories help us build resiliency without having to experience it themselves. To teach them these lessons before they have a chance to experience it. It was just an amazing learning. This has been another great episode of the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie Podcast. We'll see you next week.